0: All right. So let's go through these quickly. Uh, John chapter 4, 23 and 24, tells us that we worship God in spirit and in truth. And I think often we neglect that truth part and fear of becoming over intellectual uh, and overthinking things. And we want to instead uh, pursue that spiritual and emotional high. But we mustn't neglect the fact that God is there to be observed and God is there to be learned about. And so this is one of the reasons why we're going through this series and going through these quizzes is really not to uh, make you feel any better or worse about yourself, but to just kind of see where you're at. And this is for you. Um, You know, no one's going to be looking at your answers. I'll be looking at Chris's. So, um, but let's go through these real quick. So question number one, in his humanity, the son is subordinate to the father. You can feel free to call these out. It is true. So the Son is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You can see that in John chapter 5. Number two, Jesus is two persons, a divine person and a human person in one. False. False. We'll talk about this uh, in just a few minutes, but he is fully divine and fully human. But that's actually a, a heresy that we'll talk about here. Number three, Jesus has a human body, but a divine mind, false. This is also a heresy that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, it's actually a very common error. It's misunderstood. Um, but the Son did not just assume, uh, you know, a, a human body. He wasn't just, you know, it's kind of like a Men in Black, right? He didn't, he didn't just hop into this little human robot body and, you know, was operating as God. No, he was fully God and fully man. Four, Jesus created the world. A resounding true. Uh, We see this in Colossians, that by him, meaning Christ, all things were created. Um, We also can see in John 1 3 that uh, Jesus was the agent of creation. Uh, So good. All right, number five, at the incarnation, the Son became a man. True. So we'll talk about this in a little bit too. It was not that he became a man. He took on the nature of man. He did not become any less divine by this. All right, so he took on the nature of man. Um, <clears throat> Augustine has a, a somewhat famous saying, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. And that's a good way to think about the incarnation. All right, number six, Jesus laid aside his divine attributes at the incarnation and then took them back up after his resurrection. False, that's right. Um, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but there's, there's a, a passage in Philippians where it talks about Christ emptying himself, and we'll get into that. Number seven, Jesus could have sinned when tempted. False. That's false. Um, so understand this. When, when Christ took on the form of a man, Christ was, in fact, God. Right? And by him doing this, all, everything that he did was implicable to the Trinity the Trinity, God cannot sin, so Jesus could not have sinned. This is actually um, something really interesting to think about because we say that he was tempted just like every man. Yes, he was. But it was impossible for him to sin because he was God, is God, but we say was in in his earthly carnation. All right, number eight. For our salvation, Christ's divinity is more important than his humanity. False, that's right. Uh, they're both equally important. He must have been God, and he must have been man. If he wasn't human, then he couldn't be the mediator for humans. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now that he is in heaven, Jesus no longer has a human nature. False, that's right. He will forever be God-man. He took on the nature of man, and when he was resurrected, he kept that. We see that, and we'll talk about this as we go. Um, He is and not was the visible image of the invisible God. We see that in Colossians 1. So the way he looks is the way, the way he looked at the resurrection is the way he will look to us. We know that he can, in a way that's mysterious to us, modify that appearance, right? Because sometimes people didn't recognize him, but he will always have the appearance of a man. And then number 10 Jesus will not judge at his return, the Father will. False. The Father's appointed Christ as judge. So this is part of him being, we say, Lord and Savior. This is the Lord part. So he will be judge. You can see that in John chapter 5, Acts 10, 17, 1 Corinthians 15. You can can look those up. Um, But it talks about Christ as judge. So he is the faithful one, and he will be our judge. So good? All right. I hope you guys learned something there. All right, so we are moving through the person and work of Christ, and I'm going to go ahead, and if you could put it up on the screen, um, I would like for us to read this together, actually. I think it'd be good for us. So I'll kick off, and then you guys kind of follow me. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who was born of a virgin and is both fully God and fully human, died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins rose bodily from the dead to ensure our justification and physically ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father and is now our high priest and advocate to assure our sanctification. Jesus Christ will return bodily, visibly, imminently, and gloriously into the promise of his second coming, inspires believers to live dynamically and zealously in service for him while awaiting his return. This alone is, is a magnificent set of things to think through. Um, you can look in our, in our statement of faith and there are many, many, many uh, pieces of scripture tied to these beliefs. Um, eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, fully God, fully human, substitutionary sacrifice, pays the penalty for sins, rose bodily, ensures justification, physically ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father, high priest and advocate, secures our sanctification, returning bodily and visibly. There is a lot to unpack here. And as we embark on this very short study of what we call Christology, understand that there is so much more that could be said. Um, I have actually been been a little bit anguishing this week, um, trying to figure out how to cram all of this in to do justice to our Lord and Savior. Um, You you could spend years, uh, you should be spending years studying this. Uh, We certainly could do uh, sermon upon sermon upon sermon. In fact, it it wouldn't even be wrong of me just to get up here and read scripture to you, um, you know, for an hour. And we could still not explore the full depths of Christ. So we're going to dive in. Uh, trust that everything here is not the full picture. I'm going to try to give you uh, the fullest picture I can in our time, uh, but it's going to be a lot, so fire up your pens, you know, steal paper from your neighbor, uh, and hopefully write some stuff down. If you have questions, you can see me afterwards, um, and we'll go through this. So. Uh, Christology. It's the field of study within theology. So theology, God study, right? And there's Christology, Christ study, uh, where we actually look at uh, primarily the ontology, and that's the nature of being, all right? So you've heard of like an ontological argument. Well, this is the ontology, and this is the nature and the person of Jesus himself. Really, you've got three different ways to look at Jesus. You have you have (coughs) eternity past, you have the pre-incarnate Christ, and what he did and who he was, and how he interacts with, with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then you have the incarnate Christ, and this is what we were able to observe while he was here, and this is what's documented primarily in the Gospels. And then you have the ascended Christ, what he's doing right now. And so there's three primary things you have to look at when you're looking at Christology, when you're starting to study Jesus himself, Okay. Now, just so you know, we kind of use these interchangeably. We'll use a past tense and a present tense and a future tense. Don't get too caught up on the tenses um, because he's eternal. And so it's really hard to describe, you know, an eternal being who actually spent a little bit of time here in time, okay? So don't get too caught up on the tenses. Um, Again, see me afterwards if, if you get stuck anywhere. But primarily primarily Christology is you're looking at his ministry, his acts and teaching, and then also looking at the person and his role in salvation. All right, so this is Christology. Now, I think one of the most staggering claims of Christianity, one of the things that really makes Christianity unique is is the second person of the Godhead, which we talked about last week. Remember the shield? Okay, keep in mind your shield, your Trinity shield. The second person of the Godhead became the second Adam. He took on the nature of human being, and then he opened up the way for us that had been closed by Adam. So Adam sinned. Adam was given a charge, and he failed, right? Humanity failed. Now, there's a, there's a, a terminology here. Adam and Eve became, well, they were our, what's called our federal parents. So through them, all of sin was inherited. So every single person born thereafter because they were the first, inherit sin. There's a mechanism there we don't quite understand, but there it is. We inherit sin, so they're called our federal parents. So because man was the one that failed, man had to be the one that would, of course, redeem. Well, how could this be, right? Because it's impossible. Humans are nothing but sinful. You know, we, we, we joke, you know, I sin five times before I get out of bed in the morning, and I sin five more times before I eat breakfast, right? It's, it's very difficult for humanity to not sin, and that's why Christ came in the form of man. He became the second Adam and redeemed for us. So as we move through, keep these things in mind, kind of write them down, and put them in your toolbox. Really what theology is, and what doctrine is, is learning how to connect dots. So you have all these ideas that scripture lays out, and scripture lays out a lot of ideas, but they're not just moralistic stories. They are ideas for you to understand God. This is how he chooses to reveal himself to us, at this point in redemptive history. So what we need to do as believers and as theologians, because yes you are, learn how to connect the dots. All right? Now, there are a few things, because we're going through this study briefly, we have to establish uh, as, as uh, axioms, as, as undeniable. All right? And again, if you want to deny these, you can send me nasty gram emails. Um, but number one, Christ is God. It's indisputable. Number two, uh, he came to earth as a man. He was born of a virgin. He died on a cross, and he ascended into heaven after a resurrection. It wasn't just he came back to life, but he actually was resurrected into a new life. These are things we have to establish if we're going to move through this study, all right? And then the last thing is all of Scripture is about God's redemptive plan, and his redemptive plan is was, always has been, Christ. All of it. From the very first words in Genesis to the closing words in Revelation, it's about Jesus. He is the redemptive plan. All of Scripture is a redemptive plan. And it's God noting it out for us, all right? Okay. Now, there's also something we have to talk about is what's called a Christophany, all right? You might have heard theophany, Else being God, but Christophany, this is a visible manifestation of God. And in the Old Testament, these are the pre incarnate versions of Christ. This is where he presents himself to us uh, in various occasions. When, When God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day, it's the pre incarnate Christ. When Jacob wrestles the angel of the Lord, it's the pre incarnate Christ. There's lots and lots and lots of verses. Um, You can see this in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Judges, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Isaiah, Psalms, and Zechariah. You can see this everywhere. So when you see angel of the Lord, or you see an appearance like the Son of God, it really was the pre-incarnate Christ, okay? Um, And then we talked about the virgin birth, how this is... I I think we kind of cast this one aside, like the, the, the pure oddity of it, right? It's like, oh yeah, he was born of a virgin, and then we move on to the rest of the story. But you have to understand the whole point, we talked about Adam and Eve being our federal parents, sin had to be bypassed. If Jesus had been born with Joseph as his father, he wouldn't have been God. We would have missed the whole miraculousness of God taking on the nature of man, but he also would have taken on sin nature. He would have taken on that fleshly aspect. It's the only time it's ever happened, and the only time it ever will happen. Okay? So the virgin birth is a must. All right, so let's look at what is the purpose of Christ, right? So if we're studying Christology, well, what's the purpose of him? Really, we have to look at the whole story as an aspect of redemption. And what did redemption do for us? And as we move through, we have to understand that, yes, we can learn about his person. And, you know, did he like, you know, Cheerios or Captain Crunch? Like, we always think about these things. Like, what was he like, you know? But... More importantly, it's what is his purpose here. He came for a purpose. He didn't just become a man. He didn't just change his nature for nothing. He didn't just stop being, you know, what he was doing in eternity and say, ah, oh, I'm just going to go down on earth and chill for a while. That's, that wasn't what his plan was. The plan all along had been, I'm going to do this thing for a purpose, right? So, and he sits on high now. So what is the purpose of it? He transfuses believers with power. He quickens us to a spiritual life. Quickening meaning we were dead in spiritual life. And he raises us to walk with him, right? So it's that quickening. But it's like, what is he doing now? He sanctifies us by the Spirit, right? He's constantly working and interceding for us. And we're going to talk about that intercession because that's a really cool thing. But really, he's adorning the church, and he's empowering us to move through life and to carry out his will. And we'll talk about that, too. Now, when we talk about Christ being our Redeemer, Redeemer from what? Well, of course, redeeming from sin. And when you think about sin, you probably think of the law, right? So we broke the law. We were constantly breaking the law. And what did the religious leaders constantly accuse him of? You came to abolish the law. And he's like, no, I did not come to abolish the law. Which means, there, one of the definitions of abolish, which is, is what is used in the New Testament, is to end before its time. Right? Not to stop it, but to end before its time. So Jesus says, I did not come to end the law before its time, but I came to fulfill it. Which was something very interesting. If you were in, you know, if in those times, you were hearing this, you would have understood what do you mean before its time. The law can't end. The law is eternal. The law is God. Jesus says, no, I am the author of the law I will interpret it for you I will give you the right interpretation there had been any number of misnomers we know that the Pharisees had become we say legalistic so Jesus says I'm going to reinterpret this for you I'm going to give you the correct interpretation and I'm going to guide you through it and I'm going to fulfill it I am the one that fulfills he's the author of it and he knew best Um, they didn't take kindly to that but there he was Again, the sole purpose of the incarnation was the redemption. He didn't have to take the form of a man for any other reason except to redeem flesh humanity. We are these odd type of humans. We're odd anyway. But we're this odd type of creation. We're not an animal and we're not a spirit. We are a kind of a hybrid, right? We're not just souls that have, you know, little flesh costumes, again like the men, the men in black thing. S-s-s- I never thought I would use that like in a sermon, but here I am. Um, but we're not souls inhabiting a body. No, we are souls. We are souls. And when we die, when this flesh dies, which it was never meant to do, the act of the soul leaving the body is unnatural. It was not supposed to be that way. And so I think part of the idea why we think death is scary, even on a subconscious level, is we know it's unnatural, and we don't know what's going to happen next. Even as believers, if you're honest, you're kind of like, well, I don't know. I mean, I I trust Christ, and I know to be absent in the body is to be present with him, but I don't know what that looks like. How do I get there? Right? So there's, there's a little bit of fear here. So Christ comes and says, I have come to make this possible that when you do die, this unnatural thing, for a time, you can be present with the Father. He would not have become a man otherwise. It would not have been necessary. But now he mediates on our behalf because he was man. How else would he know? How else could he be a mediator? When you think of a mediator, it's somebody who sits in the middle and knows both sides. It's somebody who understands one position and the other position, how could he have understood rightly for us if he had not taken that on? Now, we're not justified by the physical indwelling of Christ. We're justified by grace alone. We've we heard sermons uh, probably growing up, if you've grown up in the church, you hear something, you say, Jesus lives in my heart, and, and I invited Jesus to live in my heart. I mean, Jesus doesn't like take up room in one of your vows. Right? He's, not, he's not sitting... You know, in your person, you are not possessed by Jesus. No, there's a mechanism here where the Spirit binds us with Jesus. And again, this is a mechanism we do not understand, but we are bound to Christ, and then Christ presents us to the Father. So, I know, I'm sorry if you've got your cross-stitching, you know, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart and stuff. Um, But to understand this, okay? It's better than that. It's better than Jesus lives in your heart. No, you are bound by the Holy Spirit to Christ. And that is more powerful than the idea of him coming to live in your heart, which, again, just, ah, it's weird to me, sorry. Um, but again, he took this flesh so that that could all be possible. So we seek mercy from the Father because we are now bound to Christ, and Christ says, you will now have access to this. God gives us rest in Christ. So God what appeared to be a a wrathful judge, right? And rightfully so. Christ presents us now because we are bound to him, right? We are bound. Think of that word, we are bound. We cannot be broken away from him. And the Holy Spirit ensures this. You're thinking, sorry, Chris, if I'm stealing your sermon points from next week, but this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just, you know, float around like a dove and, you know, and so oh, it's the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit's a warrior, and the Holy Spirit is, is just as much God as the Father and the Son, but he binds us with Christ actively, always. That's wonderful. Eternal mediator. If you, if you look in 1 John, and you look in Romans 8, and you look in 1 Timothy 2, you're going to see this idea of a mediator, an eternal. And I want to stress the fact that it's eternal, so what does that look like? Well, how do we mediate for each other? We do it through prayer. We intercede for each other. We pray. Lord, my brother has, has a struggle. Lord, my sister has a struggle. Somebody's dying. Somebody's hurt. Somebody has a need. And we pray and we intercede and we, we, we constantly do this and the Father hears us. But who intercedes for us and what does that look like? Right. So we know Christ does this. But I want to... I want to perhaps correct something that I, I, I probably have said it in the past, um, but we have this idea, and you, you say, you know, imagine a courtroom, and God is sitting at the, at the bench, and, you know, Satan is the, the prosecuting attorney, and, you know, Jesus stands up, and he, he presents you, and he says, because of me, you know, they are innocent. And, and that sounds fine and well, except it's not like that. Right? And God and Jesus is not kneeling before the Father. He's not He's not coming to the Father in weakness and saying, But they're mine, they're innocent. It's better than that. It's more than just him declaring verbally, they are mine. So what does that look like? Jesus' appearance before God is with authority. It's not in weakness. It's not in a type of subordination that means Jesus doesn't know what God might say. He's like, well, these are mine, and I won them, and he's waiting patiently for God to make the verdict. Mm -mm. It is the death and the resurrection alone that are proof of our innocence. So understand me. The resurrection is the constant reminder. That was the seal. So without saying a word, the fact that the the atonement was won on the cross and it was sealed with the resurrection is the intercession. The death and the resurrection are the intercession. It's not like Christ is up there talking 24 hours a day or whatever kind of time measurement they have up in heaven. It's not that he's up there just constantly, constantly, constantly. This is mine. This is mine. Blood, mine. Defense, defense, defense. Mm -mm, No, he stands. He sits. He is in the presence of God with authority. And the fact that he did this is the intercession, it is the verdict. So I just want you to think about that in a different way. I want you to understand it in a different way. It's not a weakness. It is a position of authority that he has with the Father. And he earned it. All right. Let's see. All right. Nature of Christ. So one of the most critical things we have to understand about Jesus Christ is that he is God and he is Lord. That's capital L. This word Lord is very important. It was important to both the Hebrews and to the Greeks. Now, in Greek, there's the word theos, all right? We've heard this word a lot, theos, and it's used to refer to Jesus numerous times in the New Testament. Now, theos can mean generically God, like lowercase g, God, or it could mean uppercase g, God, the Father, whom we think about, okay? But here's where this is important. So there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint and it was, it was used widely by the New Testament writers. And in fact, we know that a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, they quote, come from the Septuagint. And that's, this isn't wrong, okay? Um, but that same word theos that is used in the Septuagint to refer to God is the same word in the same way that they use it to refer to Jesus. So the New Testament writers were being very clear in their language that they were referring to Jesus as God. And there was no other option for them. They couldn't see it this way. So that's theos. But we have another word, which is kyrios, with a K, a kappa. Um, And it means Lord. Now, Lord could mean sir. It could just be a, a formal designation. It could be somebody that owned land right? It could be just somebody rich and wealthy. It could actually be somebody that was noble, or it could have been a Roman governor or something. It could, Lord could mean a lot of things, but again, we have multiple references of kurios referring to Yahweh. We talked a couple weeks ago how the Hebrews took the vowels from Adonai and applied it to the YHWH, and we get the word Yahweh, which was sub, you know, subsequently translated inappropriately to Jehovah but it's this same word it's the same word kyrgios that they use in the septuagint to refer to god l-o-r-d capitals that they're referring to jesus so again the new testament writers were being very clear they believed that jesus was god and all uppercase lord okay so you have to understand where they're coming from. And this is kind of where language fails us a little bit. Um, but it's there, it's there to be studied. And I encourage you to go and study. Uh, I have had the benefit uh, in preparing for this of just mining the depths of, of Christology and, and trying to put it all together. Um, and so it's out there. It's, it's there for you. I'd be happy to recommend some books for you. Now, Christ did not forfeit his divine attributes while on earth. There is, uh, and if you'll flip there with me, I'll read it to you, Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. This idea that Christ could empty himself of his divine attributes is called kenosis theory. K-E-N-O-S-I-S theory. You can write that down and look it up. But let's read uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to grasp. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's a word here in Greek. A lot of your translations say emptied himself or poured himself out. This is kano'o, okay? Okay. Um, and it literally means to make empty, to make of no effect, of no reputation. So he, what he did here, and, and a lot of people say, well, he poured out his divineness. And, and there were times when Jesus said, you know, no one knows but the Father. And there were times where they would ask him questions, and he would constantly defer. And he wouldn't answer the question directly. But then again, you have the transfiguration, where he revealed himself fully and holy. You have, you have where, you know, John's baptism, where he comes up out of the water and the, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, not as a dove. And it descends on him. And you hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This, he didn't say, this is Jesus, the Son of Joseph, in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so we know that Jesus was, in fact, fully God. And so this idea, this kenosis theory, this keno, this idea of him pouring out his divinity is just false. And I want to remind you, if he were to lose even one aspect, one, one ounce, if it were, of his divinity, then, then we're in trouble. Then, then the whole plan of salvation went awry. And if it went awry, that means God can fail. And if God can fail, then we're doubly in trouble. Okay, so kenosis theory. Think of it like this. Think, if, if, think of a king, and a king is dressed. He's so, he's so well-dressed. He's, he's got his robe, and he's got his very fine, you know, clothes on. And he were to take those off, and he were to put rags on. And I don't mean just like regular clothes. I mean rags. He looks filthy. Is he any less a king? No. Does he see any threat to his throne? No. He just looks different. He doesn't behave different. He's still a king. He still has all the authority and all the privilege that come with. So think of when you read, when you read verses like this, when you, when you hear people say, yeah, well, God emptied himself out. Well, Jesus emptied himself out. No, what he was saying is, I don't need to try to grasp after the things of God because I am God, right? I'm not seeking to be like God. I am God, I don't need to display to anybody that I am God because I am. And this is what he's saying, and this is where kenosis theory gets it wrong. The question on a quiz was, uh, does does Christ appear as a man in heaven? Let's work through that. We know he sits at the right hand of the Father. We know that when he came out of the tomb, um, he could move very fast He could move through objects, through walls. But then he would sit and eat with his friends. He would, uh, he allowed Thomas to touch, I actually have scars on my hands, that's weird. Um, But he allowed Thomas to touch his hands and his scars. Right? So he could be seen, he could be heard, he could be touched. But yet he was different. So he is that form we talked about. When he ascended into heaven, when he, when he came out of the tomb, he looked that way. This is what scripture tells us. But then when he ascended into heaven, there wasn't some kind of like, you know, transformation that we don't know about where he, be, you know, he went back to being whatever his, whatever form he had pre-incarnation. No, he took on the nature of humanity. We can no more shed our nature than stop breathing. We can't do it. We will always be this nature. When we are resurrected into the newness of life, we will still have this form somehow. It'll be slightly different, right? But we're going to have this form because this is who we are. Well, Christ took that on, He became a man. And so He will never lose that. And this is why He can be our constant mediator because He is that man. Now, What does it mean to be mediator? What is this reconciliation that we keep talking about? What is this redemption? Well, you've got judgment. God is love, yes, but God is also just. He put the rules down. He gave them to Adam and Eve. Because they slipped, there had to be recompense for it. So when we, when we think of God, and I think we too, even as believers, but, but certainly as non-believers, you probably think of God as this angry father, right? Or, or you think, man, I have this trouble in my life because I'm, I'm, I'm sinning, right? I'm, or I've sinned. And we see multiple examples of the disciples saying to Jesus, well, who sinned that this man should be blind or why is he crippled? And he's like, no, 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 you're missing the point. It's not that any particular person sinned. It's because of sin, right? It's not, it's not like I'm sinning and therefore my children are destined to suffer through some kind of other sin in the future or other, other ailment. He's saying, no, it is because of sin largely. So we shouldn't think of God as this angry father. Contrary, we know that even while we were sinners, God what? Loves us. So how can he love us and still have this this righteous anger, this indignation? So when we look at the throne of God, where we used to see dread, we now see mercy and kindness because of Christ. This is the intercession. This is the redemption. This is the way that Christ gives us to the Father. We are part of his inheritance. We enter into the inheritance with him. So instead of seeing this, this anger, and God can be angry, instead of seeing this wrath, and God certainly does have wrath, we can see the mercy and the kindness and the grace that he gives us through Jesus. That is the work of redemption for believers. God promises through the hand of Christ that he will be the eternal and protector, protector and defender of the church eternal. Just how we are bound to Christ through the Holy Spirit. Christ has promised to be bound to the church. The the image given is Jesus says, I am the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And I certainly don't think Jesus is going to be looking after any kind of divorce. Forever bound. How that looks in eternity, I don't know, but the church is his and believers belong to the church. This is why, and this is a sidebar, but this is why the image of marriage is so important. This is why it is so important to honor your marriages because it is a reflection, it's a shadow of what we see with Christ in the church. When we dishonor our marriages in any capacity, we dishonor the image of God because it is given to us through him. All right. Being a Christian does not exempt people from troubles. So yes, we're part of the church. Yes, we we see mercy and kindness on the throne, but just because you are a believer, just because <clears throat> you you rightly confess that Christ is your Lord does not mean that you're going to win the lottery and your marriage is going to be perfect and your kids are going to grow up just fine and everything's going to be great and you're going to have perfect health until you die from some kind of just old age natural causes whatever. It's not how it works. Because of what? We talked about this a couple minutes ago. Sin. Right? We are still subject to it. We still battle the flesh. We battle our own flesh. We battle other people's flesh. Right? It's like, you know, I'm a nice guy except for other people. (laughs) Right? It's, it's, you know, it's I like my job except for all the people I deal with. And it's that kind of mentality. But see, it's uh, driving. (laughs) Driving. So... I'm an I'm a upstanding citizen, and I am a fine driver. It's everybody else that doesn't know what they're doing, right? But it's this idea that you are now accountable, or not accountable, but at least party to the sins of others, right? Their sin affects your life. Your sin affects their life. And so it's because of sin that, that you know, all these things happen. And certainly part of it's just because we make dumb decisions very often because of sin. Um, But don't blame it on just everything. But there is sin in the world. And you being a believer does not exempt you from trouble. Right? It could be that your life will be trouble. It could be that your life is meant to be hard and difficult until such a time that God uses it and you glorify him through that. And that person who benefits from it, perhaps, is glorifying to God through their circumstance. Or it could be that you just have an awesome life, and that glorifies God too. I don't know. I'm not a health and wealth guy. I just assume things are going to go bad every Monday. But here's the point. We follow the example of Christ. Christ was a man of sorrows. Isaiah is very clear that he would be a man of sorrows. We see in Hebrews 5.8 that this was true. He was submissive to this. He was submissive to difficulties. He did not... He did not grasp after his rightful, divine rights. He submitted to the sorrows and the difficulties and the troubles of this world. And we are no better than our master. So we will have troubles. We will have times when it hurts, when it hurts bad. We will have times of of the highest joy, and that comes from him. And by the way, joy is a lot different than happiness. Joy comes from the Lord. Happiness is it's an emotion. But we have both of those, but we are no better than him. I see a lot of proud Christians, just, just proud, you know, and, and thinking that they're entitled, but they look nothing like the Savior they claim to serve. How can you be proud and arrogant when your master died on a cross, when your master washed the feet of his friends, when your master was bruised and beaten. How can you be arrogant? You can't. You can't. Repent of that. Be better than that. Be like your master who was humble. Be like Christ. And I could just end it here. Um, All right, fully God and fully man forever. You can find that in Romans chapter 8. Write that one down. He willingly gave up his original form to become like us, but he did not forfeit any of his nature after death and resurrection. So uh, lots of verses there. Matthew 26, Luke 24, John 20, uh, Acts 1 and 7, and Revelation 1 and Revelation 19. You can find all of that there where it talks about how Christ continues to have the nature of man while being still fully divine. He did have limitations in his humanity. We know out of Hebrews 5 that he learned, right? So he, he could understand and learn and gain. He grew, obviously. He was a child and he grew into a man. We can find that in Luke chapter 2. Uh, he would grow tired, right, and weary. Uh, John chapter 4, he would get hungry. We can see that in Matthew chapter 4. He would get thirsty, John chapter 19. He fatigued. He would often retreat away to kind of recharge. We can see that in Matthew 4. Uh, And we know, of course, um, that he could be hurt. You can see that in Luke chapter 23. So he had limitations in his flesh. Again, this is his submission to that side of it. He was not any less God because he did any of these things. And this is the stumbling block when, when, when Paul says that You know, Christianity, Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jew and to the Greek. There's a lot of implications there. It's a very short saying that would have made a lot of sense to readers in his time. But he was a stumbling block because the Jews couldn't understand how their Messiah, their promised Messiah, the one that had been promised all the way back in Genesis. They didn't understand how he could die. It didn't make sense to them. He didn't fulfill his earthly kingdom. He didn't tramp on Rome so how could this be? But then also with the Greeks, the Greeks had no concept of a deity that could die. It didn't make sense to them. They 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 couldn't follow with it. You're like, "What do you what what, what what like what do you mean?" Right? It's like it's like us saying like he fell up. How do you fall up? This is how the Greeks would have understood Jesus dying. They just didn't they didn't have a capacity for it. And again, we are so familiar with the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we kind of just push it off. We, we, just, we, we, we take it rotely. And, and in a sense, that's okay. But you must understand the, the absurdity of it. And this, is why, and this is why God did it. It seems absurd to us because we have no category for it. We have no place in our minds that God would do this. And and then and then not only that, not only that he would come in the form of human, which we have examples, uh, you know, of other gods, you know, in, in mythologies, and, and taking the form of a human, but then doing that and then dying, and then not just that, but then coming back. <laughs> it just it never happened. There was no there was no classification for such a thing. So don't don't be don't be too put off by that. Um, don't be put off that he had emotions. You know, Jesus marveled. Right? He felt. Uh, he certainly was troubled and he wept. One of the most famous verses, Jesus wept. Right? Um, but we know that he felt. It wasn't just like he was there and he's like, all right, I've got a mission, I've got to go to earth, and I've got to live this perfect life for 30-some years, and then I've got to die on the cross, and I've got to see some people afterwards, and then after that I'm going to get on, on the Mount of of and I'm going to rise to heaven. Like, it wasn't that. Like, he actually lived and experienced life. He, he felt emotion, surely, when, uh, we don't know exactly what happened to, to his adopted father, Joseph. We, it, scripture doesn't tell us, history doesn't tell us, but it's very likely that by the time his ministry came around, he was dead. Uh, Joseph would have been, not substantially older, but, but older than Mary. Um, and so, surely, he, he mourned, right? He, he felt loss that his father, the man that had raised him, was gone. Surely he felt emotions when his his family came and tried to retrieve him, and they were saying, "Yeah, he's crazy. Just bring him here, and like you know, we'll take him home." You know, he felt these things when his friends, when his disciples, they they would they would go and do work, and then you know afterwards they'd be like, "Hey, Jesus, I don't understand what you said. You said all those words, and that's good job, Jesus. But what does that mean?" And he's like, "Are you for real? How long have you been with me? Have you not read?" right? So he became frustrated. So he feels these things, and so I don't, what I'm trying to say is when we, when we say Jesus became a man, he was born of a, like, don't, don't let that run by you. Don't miss that. Don't miss the implications. There's a lot going on there because he was just like us in that. Of course, he was sinless. There was no way he could have sinned. As I said before, when, when the son took on the nature of man, uh, he was no less God. And so everything that Jesus the man did applied and implied the Trinity. Well, we know God is above reproach, decidedly so, uh, ontologically so. There's that word, write it down. Ontologically so, it is impossible for him to be anything but righteous, And so Jesus could not have sinned. And you're like, well, if he couldn't have sinned, then was he really tempted? Yes, he really was tempted. But it was never going to be a possibility for him to sin. Now, this is the part here where we could stop and do like two more or three sermons on this, okay? So I apologize for having to move quickly through it, but understand this. He was tempted. He was tempted. He could have at any point used his his divinity to not be tempted. Certainly, when he was in the desert and Satan was tempting him, what was he tempting him with? He was tempting him with his divinity. Well, if you're the son of God, surely, 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 right? Yeah, he could have, but he didn't. What did he use? He used scripture. He used his word, Right? Literally, his word, which is, again, the model we are to follow. If you're, if you're connecting dots here, remember, theology is about connecting dots. So you're connecting dots here. Jesus used scripture as a defense, not his divinity. He was giving us the example. He was giving us the proof that it works. Because Satan is not immune to the words of God. All right? All right, the heresies. You can go ahead and put the first slide up, Daniel. All right, so isms. Isms are, uh, for me, one of, the, one of the fun things about theology. Um, lots and lots of isms. There are certainly more isms um, surrounding heresies of the nature and person of Christ, but let's go through a few of these. Um, if you don't have time to write down the, the full description there, just write down the name, um, and you can, trust me, find Uh, all of these uh, online. So Apollinarianism, it states that Jesus could not have had a human mind, rather Jesus had a human body and emotions, but a divine mind. This goes back to the idea of could God have sinned, or could Jesus have sinned? Well, it makes sense if he had a divine mind, then of course he could then control his flesh. But what's missing here is the nature of man. Again, he would have been that, he would have just been riding that little flesh robot, right? The divine mind, he would have been possessing, possessing that body, a divine mind in a human body. And this is not the case. We know that he was fully God and fully man. All right, the next one, Nestorianism. So Nestorianism uh, was first brought up by a guy named Nestorius, which is like a cool name. It's like a cool name for a dog, Nestorius. Um, There were two separate persons. So there was, this one's a little bit hard to grasp. There was a human person and a divine person in the incarnate Christ. So if you could take me and split me down the middle, this is my good side and this is my bad side, right? This is my divinity and this is my flesh. And I'm somehow inhabiting this space. Again, this is not the description that Scripture gives us about Jesus. He took on the nature of man. But he was not possessing it. They were not somehow, and and here's where this comes from, by the way. In the ancient world, they rightly believed that anything corporal, anything physical, was subject to sin. And some of them would even go so far as to say that anything material whatsoever was, was absolutely corrupt. And so the argument was, well, if Jesus, being God, you know, became a man, how could he have become, quote, corrupt? And there's where a lot of these isms come from, is they're they're trying to rectify their personal uh, doctrinal beliefs, right, with their old religions. This is called syncretism. This is trying to put together two unlike things. They were trying to rectify what they believed with what Scripture was teaching and what Jesus said about himself. So Nestorianism, two individual persons somehow in one body. Next one. Alright. You guys want to try to say this one? Monophysitism. <laughs> so, mono, all right, you see the mono, and you see the fist, phys, the physical, okay? So this is a position that Christ only had one nature. Now, if we if we stop there, we could kind of work this one through and be like, well, that kind of makes sense, maybe. Okay, but then we say, well, wait a minute. He was fully God and fully man. So what do we do with that? Now, what they believed is that there were two natures. There was the divine nature, and then there was, of course, the human nature. And those two natures somehow mixed and became a third new kind of nature. A lot of you, I know, probably think along these lines that he must have been something entirely different. Well, no. But see, this is the mystery of it. This is the beauty of the incarnation. It's something we don't necessarily understand. Right? How could we? God had to do something so miraculous, and and we use this word, and for lack of a better, he did something so inventive in our minds to achieve... Really, fellowship with believers. To achieve the justice that was due, he did something so out of the box that we would never have conceived of it. And, and good, right? Because if we can conceive fully of what who God is, then he's really not God. All right, so this one is, is really closely associated um, with, with another type of heresy. But the idea is if you were to take uh, a, a drop of honey, or a drop of uh, food coloring, and put it into the ocean, or put it into a lake. It, it, it disperses, right? It becomes, it becomes something different. It's not lake water. It's not honey. It's a combination of that, and this is what monophysitism tries to, tries to do with the nature of Christ. And the last one, Arianism, We talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about the person of God. But it asserts that Christ as the Son of God was created by God at a point in time. Arianism was a heresy that popped up uh, pretty early in Christian history and thrived for centuries, council after council after council, which is what they had back then when they would all get together and discuss, you know, what was developing. Um, you know, theologies and everything. And, and, and time after time after time after time, it was debunked. But it still thrived. It still, it still held on, which says a lot um, about our nature as people. We want so badly to believe what we believe is right, we want it to be right so much that we will deny God to get it. So, but it says that the Father is therefore, or, or the, the Son is therefore uh, fully subordinate to the Father because he is a created being. Now, what's the problem with this? If Jesus is a creative being and we worship Jesus, we are worshiping the creature instead of the creator. Right? We see that in Romans. So we are to be despised then because we are idolaters. I mean, Arian. That's the, that was a guy's name, Arian. He didn't really seem to have a problem with this, again, because he, he was trying to rectify what he believed against what Scripture believed and, and what he believed won out. Now, this closely relates to modalism. We talked about this, again, a couple weeks ago, where God operates uh, in different persons, right? So sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. He operates in different ways at different times, but he is still one. He's he's, he's just a single being. This is contrasted to the Trinity where we know God is three. All right, so we covered that and I don't have a whole lot of time to go through that. But those are some of the isms. So purpose of redemption. God's love for his children is incomprehensible and resolute. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So because Christ paid that blood debt, we can be reconciled to Christ. Christ achieved redemption for believers, through his obedience to the Father, right? Through his his humanity, he was obedient in that way. He was the second Adam. You'll hear me say that a lot. Write that one down and go look it up. Second Adam. He achieved the righteousness that Adam failed. He achieved this. Adam's disobedience requires man to be reconciled back to God. How does this happen? It happens through Christ, We can't do it. It's impossible. Christ came forth and took Adam's place. He he, he took that place in in the, the genealogical line, if you will, of humanity. He interrupted that sin inheritance and broke that cycle. And this is massive, this is important. A lot of us we we see redemption as kind of just this thing that, that's happened, and we don't appreciate it fully. We get so consumed with our sin and the sweetness of it that we don't understand that the mercy of God is something to be grasped after. It's something to be desired and sought. We achieve that through Christ. We partake in Christ's death. We are crucified with Him. That's Romans 6. We are there with Him because of our humanity. Resurrection. Why was it necessary? If we look to the cross, we only see weakness, death, and frailty. We see Jesus hanging there. He's 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 not going to come down. And of course, what did some of the people? You know, uh, they, they heckled him. If you're the Son of God, why don't you come down here and call your angels and you know and destroy us all? And he could have. Um, I, uh, I I I I had an aunt. Uh, she's she's passed now, but she she discipled me and, and she said it to me one time when I was a child. And so it stuck with me that, that, that all of creation must have been white-knuckled watching the crucifixion and not understanding fully what was going on. And surely the legions and legions of angels were just, you know, not fully prepared for what was about to happen, right? They were just like, what, what is this? You know, what's going on? And take with that what you will, but it's the idea of when we see Christ on the cross, we see weakness, This is why we do not picture Christ on the cross. Number one, because it's a second commandment violation. And number two, because our Christ is not on the cross. He has come off. He has ascended. In the resurrection, we see a victorious Savior. We see a powerful Savior. We see him in his fullness. We see his full divinity now. He is powerful, and I told you before, he stands alongside or sits with the Father in a presence of authority because he has been deemed Lord and Savior. So this is why the resurrection was necessary. The resurrection was the powerful thing that happened. It was the satisfaction. So the atonement was won on the cross, right? He died on the cross, and the atonement, the sacrifice was made. Sin sin was, was covered and paid for then. But we would have been stuck. If he hadn't rose, if he hadn't come out of the grave on his own power and authority, where would we be? Well, our sin's forgiven, but we're not really redeemed. We're not going anywhere. It was the resurrection that was God's seal of approval on the atonement. And because of the resurrection, Christ being firstborn among the dead, we now are entitled to that with him as believers. We can receive that inheritance alongside him as believers because God has sealed that. Now you'll see, you'll see a couple different ways. You'll see that God raised Jesus from the dead and then you hear Jesus say, I raised myself from the dead. And you're thinking, well, which one is it? Is it God or is it Jesus? Well, yes. Right? Come on. So Jesus is God. And so it's really just two different ways of, of the writers telling how it is. It's not wrong either way. Jesus is God. He raised himself from the dead, but it was also the Father's seal of approval, right? And no Jesus Jesus, in his role as the Son, the, the eternal Son, in the way that the Trinity works, submits to the Father, but he is not subordinate to the Father. The way the relationships works. Is that he he willfully and, and and lovingly submits to the Father in this way. And so the Father showing this seal and this sign is appropriate. It doesn't make Jesus any less God. Not not any less a kind of God, any less God. All right. The resurrection offers really some assurances to believers, and I'm going to move through these fairly quick. It ensures our regeneration to new life because Christ did it first. First Peter Chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. Write those down. Christ rose first so that we can go along with him. Second, it ensures us power to gain more and more victory over sin in our lives. Romans 6. You can learn to conquer sin in your life. I can learn to conquer sin in my life. We have the power through the resurrection and because Christ gives it to us to conquer sin more and more. Is it possible to live a sinless life? Man, theory, yeah. Yeah, you can. If you are fully and solely reliant, now up to a point, right? You're born into into this corruptness. But yes, you can live a life that, by all intents and purposes, would appear to be sinless. It doesn't mean you are. Christ is sinless. But you have that with him. Number three, ensures us power for ministry to work in the kingdom. Acts chapter one. So there's a lot of work to be done here. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of hard things to be done in our life as believers. But he empowers us to do this. He gives us the strength and the energy and the desire to love what is Unlovable. And lastly, it ensures our justification. The resurrection ensures our justification. It was that sign. It was that proof. You can find that in Romans chapter 4. And the resurrection reminds us of our, morta- of our mortality. Life is short. Our Savior died. We will die too. Although some of us, if, if Lord comes, uh, might not die in the same way as everybody else, but That'll happen. But it reminds us there's a lot of work to do. We're given charges in Scripture. We are to make disciples of all nations. We are to care for orphans and widows and the poor. Make disciples of all nations. That's a hefty charge. I mean, Jesus wasn't like, hey, I want you to go out and do your best. I want you to go here and go there. And when you get time, take a summer mission trip. He's like, no. Go make disciples of all nations. Uh, I had a, a... When I was a young man, I'm still a young man. When I was a younger man, um, I had somebody tell me that all means all. And I used to get mad at him. I was like, yeah, I get it. And he's like, no, no, all means all. Go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, all right. That's your charge. What's that look like? There's a lot of different ways that looks like, and that's another sermon. But the point is, as believers, we are not to hoard this mercy, and this grace that we have received. We go and we proclaim the gospel, and the gospel isn't just lovey-dovey. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is a stumbling block. But we go, and we share, and we talk, and we teach, and we live it. And lastly, the resurrection reminds us that we are dead to sin. We see that in Romans 6. You see it again actually all through Romans. But we are dead to sin. Again, you can learn to conquer sin more and more in your life, not by not by being firm and resolute and planting your feet and being an oak. You're not an oak. You're wispy grass. Christ is an oak. Christ is your strength. You have to learn to rely on Christ. Not just when the times are hard. Not just when you can't figure out what to do. Surely, use your wisdom in life. God gave you that. Use it. But it's not just when you can't figure out what to do next that you hit your knees and that you fall on Scripture and that you pray, God, help me because I don't know what to do. Well, no kidding. You don't know what to do. You're, you're like a kindergartner playing, you know, in a physics book. You can't get it, not yet. So we rely on Christ, we turn to Christ, we fall on Christ. When our goal is to constantly glorify God more than glorifying ourselves in our joy, in our sorrows, in our struggles, in our victories, when we glorify him in that, when we're constantly seeking that, that's when the resurrection has become real for us. That's when we say, you did it first so that I can have it now. And I can claim a victory in that. I can fall on that and be reminded of that. So that's the resurrection and that's the person of Christ. I'm out of words. So <laughs> um, I hope I, I've covered it for you. I, I've actually been, uh, I didn't sleep well last night, um, thinking of, of trying to get up here and adequately teach you this. Um, surely there was more that could be said, uh, but, but understand this. Christ is Lord, Christ is God, Christ died in one year atonement, and Christ rose from the dead to seal it. You can have that. If you're if you're not a believer, you can have that. You can have that in your life as as a meaning, as something to look upon, as something, as something to grasp and hold on to, because because you're flailing. Or you could reject it and leave out of here and go about your way. But he will still be God and he will still be Lord and you will still be in denial. All right, pray with me.